0: Well, if you would, again, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And uh, we will again read verses 1 through 21, but our focus today is going to be on uh, verses 13 through 21. So it's like we did last week, we read through the whole thing, but our, we will focus only on, on one portion of that. But it's good for us to get uh, the full context So, John, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light, because of their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The grass withers, the flower falls, so the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, O oh God, that you would now give our give help us to be attentive to the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear. Be with this your servant. May we learn from you today, O oh God. May we understand this passage and may we rightly apply it to our own lives. That we may walk in your light and to your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has demonstrated his love toward his people in this way. He sent his one and only son for us to be lifted up on the cross so that we who trust in him by faith may have life in him. And we, all in believing in him, with unveiled faces, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Jesus said that spiritual transformation, that is, spiritual rebirth, is necessary in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And that spiritual transformation then leads to our apprehending the sacrifice of Christ and and, and the Spirit applying Jesus' Jesus' redemption to us our justification, our adoption, our sanctification. And so, what we're looking at today is perhaps the most familiar passage to you in the Scriptures. Undoubtedly, most of you have memorized John 3:16. At some point, you perhaps have taught your children to memorize John 3:16. Everyone knows John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life." This single verse is probably the most memorized. It is the simplest and clearest vignette of the gospel and yet at the same time may also be one of the most complex and difficult passages to understand. At the same time, most simple and most complicated together in one verse. Now the problem may be that it's so familiar. We talked a little bit about this last time. Sometimes when something is so familiar, we miss the larger picture and may possibly be because we're we're mostly accustomed to hearing John three sixteen out of context. What does it mean that God loves the world? How does this passage fit into the larger narrative of John? and another question is this a continuation of Jesus's monologue or his his discussion with Nicodemus or Is this an explanation which the the evangelist John is giving about what he had just said? What Jesus had just said? And so there's a number of questions. And there's other questions perhaps. But there's a number of questions we can ask as we come to this passage. Now... Uh, A little bit of the context as we think about, um, particularly as we just read, Nicodemus, remember, had begun this dialogue with Jesus. He had come to him at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This is how Nicodemus had begun the conversation, the dialogue that he was having with Jesus. Now, Jesus, and we just, again we just read this, but Jesus stated the necessity of being born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. You must be born again, he says. He also says you must be born of water and spirits. Now Nicodemus, we remember, was perplexed. He asked, How, how can these things happen? Which then, which, which then prompts Jesus to give him a rebuke. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? I mean, you are the one who teaches the people of God and yet you don't understand very simple things. Now Jesus, of course, is speaking about the clarity of scripture because these things are already taught in the prophet's. Nicodemus had stated that they know that Jesus must have come from God. And now Jesus relates what there is to know. The problem was that those of Nicodemus' camp did not accept the clear testimony of Scripture and of Jesus. And Nicodemus' failure was not one of intelligence. It's not that he wasn't smart enough to understand these things. It wasn't a a lack of understanding. It was was a a failure to believe Jesus' witness. The Lord had explained some things which should have been very elementary to Nicodemus. That is, the necessity of spiritual rebirth, a fact which the Old Testament prophets were very clear on. This is something that the teacher of Israel should have understood. He He should have embraced this truth. So if he cannot grasp that elementary principle, this earthly idea, then how could he grasp heavenly things? This is what Jesus is, is sort of driving at with Nicodemus. And so starting now in verse 13, Jesus begins to explain how, uh, how uh, explain something of what there is to know about these heavenly things. and, And why He knows about these heavenly things. And is therefore authoritative, can speak authoritatively about these heavenly things. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So here it is, Jesus. Jesus can speak authoritatively about heavenly things. Because only he has descended from the heavenly place. You see, no one else has ascended ascended into heaven, and then remained there, and then returned in order to teach and speak about the things that they've seen and heard. There's no one who's done that. Only the Son of Man is uniquely able to reiterate, or to relate rather, uh, the, the things that there is in the heavenly places, because only He is an eyewitness of these things. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not here speaking about the resurrection. This an, that's an event which is yet in the future. Jesus is here commenting on the fact that He, you know, or the fact of the eternal existence of the Son of God. He's speaking of the fact that He has always been, He Himself is eternal. Now, in Judaism in that day, in Jesus' day, in Nicodemus' day, there, there were a number of stories which were circulating of, of someone who had ascended into heaven and had come back with special insights about God. Many of the stories focus on Moses. Jesus insists that there's no one who has done this. No one has ascended into heaven and is able to speak on these things. So you think about, well, who are some of the people who have ascended into heaven? Well, you have Enoch, right? Enoch is taken by God. Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind, and yet neither one of them returned to speak about heavenly things. There's only one who has come from heaven to speak of heavenly things. No one has descended from heaven. And that's, that, that's the point, right? Only Jesus can speak about the things that he's speaking about. And so Jesus has the authority to speak of heavenly things because he alone has come from the heavenly places, having been eternally with the Father from before all creation. He has, as one commentator put it, quote, inherently the fullness of heavenly knowledge. Talk about having an eyewitness account. Who else could speak about these things but Jesus, the Son of God Himself? Only Jesus can speak authoritatively about these heavenly things, and that is what He is speaking of here. And so, Jesus, so our our Lord draws on an example, an example which Nicodemus would would have been very familiar with. And he does this again to illustrate a spiritual point, starting in verse 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, in many respects, thinking about the larger context, Verses 14 and 15, what I just read, these are really the controlling verses. The main point of our passage is actually drawn from here. More so, in some sense, than verse 16, which sort of piggybacks on and explains what's going on there. What Jesus is referring to is the account of the bronze serpent, which we just read as our Old Testament reading from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Keep in mind that Jesus had already explained spiritual rebirth by drawing on some Old Testament uh, term, the terms of water and spirit, uh, which are used in Ezekiel. Here, Jesus uses the account of numbers of these poisonous snakes, which are killing people, in order to make a spiritual point. Now, in Numbers 21, we, we recall that the children of Israel, they were persistently complaining against God and complaining against Moses. You know, God has brought us out here to kill us. Now, remember, we read the larger context. They do that on the heels of having just won a victory over their enemies. that God had given them a victory. And then suddenly, well, you know, God just really hates us and just wants to kill us out here. So as punishment, the Lord sends these poisonous serpents whose venom burned like fire and whose bite was a sure death sentence. Any who were bitten by these snakes would die. Now, there are snakes in the world that are like that. They're very dangerous snakes. So think about some snakes in Africa, which if you get bit by them and venom is transferred to you, um, say goodbye to your loved ones because you're not going to make it. There is no antivenom, even in our own day, for that. The people were dying. The people though realized their sin, and so they went to Moses and they asked Moses to pray to the Lord. And so the Lord, in His grace, gave His provision. The Lord provided a gracious provision to the people, and He gave instructions to Moses. Moses was to fashion a bronze serpent. He was to set that serpent on a pole so that anyone who had been bitten by these deadly snakes might look at the serpent on the pole and live. So Moses did as he was instructed. He fashioned this bronze serpent. He put it on this pole. And all the people who were bitten by these fiery serpents... Looked and those who looked to that lived. Now, this actually seems like a strange provision from God, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's a little bit. I mean, let's be honest, it's a little weird, right? Like, wow, this is this is strange. Now, of course, Nicodemus knew this account well. As a teacher of Israel, he he, he should have. And so here's the point. If God can grant life through the means of a bronze snake raised up on a pole, why would it seem strange that God would grant new spiritual life through his gracious provision of the lifted up sun? If God can save people from physical death by this bronze snake looking to that, why then is it strange to look to the lifted up Son of God for life, spiritual life? In fact, this is, Jesus says that this, this is exactly what he will do. But instead of a snake on a pole, it will be the Son of Man who will be lifted up. He will not bring mere physical life. It's not just saving people physically, that they might live physically. He will bring eternal life. He will bring spiritual life. As the Son of Man is lifted up. Now what is being referred to here is the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. The lifting up of the Son of Man on the cross. That all those who look to Him, who look to Jesus, who has been lifted up on the cross for you, dying for your sins, as you look to Him, He grants eternal life. Now, interestingly enough, lifting up can have a double meaning, can't it? It can have a double meaning. It can refer to physically lifting up Jesus on the cross, that's one sense, on a wooden pole, similar to how the bronze snake was lifted up on a pole. But it can also refer to the exaltation of Christ. And there is a sense in which both of those are in view. The lifting up of Christ physically on the cross, but also his exaltation as he is saving his people. Jesus often would speak in that sort of way, using the... The the double meaning, as it were. Now, Nicodemus would not have fully grasped the connection at this point, but he would have at least understood the reference to Numbers 21. God had provided for Israel in the wilderness, and he is again providing for his people through the Son of Man, who had come, in fact, was standing before him, speaking with him. Nicodemus should have understood the need for spiritual, uh, spiritual birth. And so Jesus is here challenging him that spiritual rebirth is found in the Son of God. Or actually, Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man. It will only be later, though, that Nicodemus, who then will see Jesus on the cross, that he would have grasped the lifting up and the exaltation of Christ. Christ was lifted up on that wooden instrument of torture and death but he's also exalted as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This becomes even more clear at the resurrection. Christ, like the bronze serpent, was lifted up for the faithful to look to and to live. This brings us now to verse 16, and what is perhaps the most abused verse in the Bible. We should mention again that there is some uncertainty as to whether this is a continuation of Jesus' monologue or an explanation offered up by the evangelist John. It is difficult to distinguish for sure, but it may not necessarily uh, it may not be necessary to have such certainty on that. Because the teaching of John is the essence of Jesus' teaching. And just because John may put it in his own words or offer an explanation to what Jesus had taught does not negate the fact that these are the words and teachings of Jesus anyway. So this is, because this is the word of the Lord. And Keep in mind also that what comes in verse 16 is rooted in what had come before it. Okay? The, the new birth. Of the attaining of eternal life is rooted in the Son of Man who is lifted up, which in turn is rooted in God's love for His people. Thus it is written, For God so loved the world. And we know that it's connected to what had come before because of the conjunction for, which is then coupled with a Greek adverb, um, <clears throat> which typically means thus or so. And so this conjunction along with the adverb in in Greek gives this sense, for God loved the world in this way. God loved the world in this way. So what is being described here is the manner and degree to which God, who, who grants eternal life, has loved the world. It's the manner and degree to which God loved the world. The lifted up Son is how God the Father has demonstrated His love for the world. Now notice also that our attention is being drawn specifically to the love of God. We're being focused in on God's love as as this is this is what is the reason for this, right? God's God's love, the giving of his of his uh, of his only Son is a demonstration of God's incredible redeeming love. And the Greek word here uh, used is agape. You're probably familiar. You've heard that word before, I'm sure. Uh, both the noun and the verbal forms of agape are used regularly by John both in his his gospel and in the epistles. And what John has actually done in in all of his writings is sort of develop a theology of love. If you want to to sort of study out God's love, a theology of love, you want to to really look at the the works of John in particular. What John is, is emphasizing in each of these is a special relationship which exists between the Father and the Son... Between the Son and His disciples, and then His disciples with one another. So this is how we're going to understand love. God's love, uh, the Father and the Son, the Son and the disciples, and then the disciples with one another. It is the Father's love for the world which is demonstrated in the giving of His unique and beloved Son. And that love is mediated by the Son to His people. You see, the world, the world which is fallen and rebellious and cursed, does not and cannot love God. The world cannot love God. The world is incapable of loving God. Not on their own. In fact, John tells us in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We are capable of love toward God because God first loved us. And so our ability to love God and to love one another is rooted in God's first loving us. And this is because 1 John 4.16 says this, God is love. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And since God himself is the very definition of love, we would need to be abiding in him, we need to be rooted and grounded in him in order to love one another. This relates actually to to what we've been talking about in Sunday school, our loving one another. This is, in a sense, the theology of love love, which John develops in his writings. And so here he is building that case in part. So it becomes more and more clear throughout scripture that God's love does not come as a result of our own loveliness our our own lovability God didn't look down at us and us not say oh you know what cute people right God didn't didn't look at us as like you know like what lovable little creatures you know well this one's not so lovable so we won't save them right <laughs> no God didn't look at us and say oh how what how, what lovable wonderful little creatures and you, you and I are not deserving of God's love and favor. We do not deserve God's love and favor. God's love toward us is because he is himself love. Love is his nature. And it is a love which is rooted in his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. And so when John speaks of God loving The world. What is not in view is a world which deserves his love or somehow has earned his love. This now brings us to the next part of the phrase, God loved the world. God loved the world. God so loved the world. What what does this mean? Typically when we think about world in a a biblical sense, particularly as, as we read the epistles of Paul, we think about the world uh, referring to the sinful systems of our present age. The wickedness and sin of our fellow fallen human beings, a political landscape which is broken with tyrants and bullies. The world often speaks of the fallen condition of all of humanity. However, that is not how the word is being used here. John's using it a little bit different. Way. It's also not speaking of every single human being on the planet either. You know, there are some who have taken this uh, to mean when God it says that God so loved the world, they've taken it to mean that, you know, God loves all people everywhere equally and universally, and thus all people are saved. That is not what John is saying here. And it's wrong because that would be contrary to what Jesus has already taught and will later teach also. God's redeeming love for the world is amazing, not because of the size of the world, that is to say how many people there are on the planet. What is amazing about God's love is that He would love a world which is utterly wicked. Again, we didn't deserve His love. We're sinners. We have fallen short of His glory. We are guilty of cosmic treason. Now, the children of Israel were accustomed to speaking of God's love, but only for the covenant people of Israel. This is how they would generally think about it. God's love for the nation of Israel. The people would come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here, John is speaking of God loving the world, which includes all of the nations. And that's a way in which the world is often spoken of. In fact, there's another place in which uh, John uh, uses the word world when people would come and say, the whole world has come. Well, that's not to say that everybody on the whole planet had showed up at the, at the temple. It's to say that representatives of all the nations were there. And that's how John's using it here, too. And so what is in view is not at the totality of human, all of humanity on the planet or of God loving a sinful system, but rather the fact that God has poured out His love on members of every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. Thus God's love is not restricted by race or ethnic background. It is restricted by those who who God has chosen to redeem. Those who are born of the Spirit. And this is John's point. World speaks of all kinds of people. This is why the same scriptures speak here of God's love for the world. But then there's other places that speak of God standing against the world. Or the prohibition of 1 John chapter 2, where we're told not to love the world or the things of the world. So there's no contradiction because Christians are not to love the world in sinful participation, whereas God loves the world in selfless redemption. So here is the point. Were not, for the love of God, graciously poured out, all would remain under his righteous wrath and curse. Because the wages of sin is death, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. John 3:16 is noted, is often quoted out of context, but it should not be missed that it has a context. It's sandwiched between verses 14 and 15 and verse 17. We should actually I mean that sound, I mean, all you do is look at it, right? And yet we should not miss that. It's in a particular place on purpose. We need to pay attention to that. God, giving of his one and only son is tied both to his death, illustrated in verses 14 and 15, and the redemption he brings, which we see in verse 17. Which is to say that the result the result of God's love is the mission of the Son. That's Jesus' mission. His purpose is salvation of those who believe in Him. Christ is lifted up just as the serpent in the wilderness is, is, is lifted up as an object to look upon and be saved. Jesus was given by the Father for the sake of, of people from every nation because of God's great abiding love. So that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. This is the mission of the Son. And as verse, and as verse 17 and following goes on to explain, Jesus came with a mission not of condemnation. No, no, Jesus came with a mission of salvation, of redemption. Let's look at verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here, here we see the purpose for which the Son was sent into the world. The purpose of Jesus' coming. Jesus' Jesus' coming wasn't to bring condemnation, that is, judging the world as guilty and therefore liable to punishment. Jesus came to redeem the elect, that many from all of the nations, not only from those among Israel, but all of the nations might be saved through Him. Now make make no mistake. Certainly, Jesus had the authority to judge the world. He says as much in John nine thirty nine. He says, "For I ju- for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do who may who see may become blind." Jesus did not come, however, with the mission of condemning the world to punishment. In fact, Jesus came into the world which was already under condemnation. Jesus came to a world which was already bound for destruction. Understand this. Jesus, in taking on flesh, did not enter into a world which was morally or spiritually neutral. There's no neutrality in the world. The world was already lost. The, the world was already under the curse of death. This is, this is again, this is like the, the people in the wilderness who were bit by the snake. You were bit by the snake. We've all been bit by the snake of sin, as it were. Right? They were all going to die. They were all condemned to death. They had the, the death sentence had already been read. God provided a provision of salvation in Christ the the provision of salvation has been offered. Jesus came into the world that the world might be saved. And not not that all the world is saved is made clear by the verses which come next. Jesus did not come to condemn the world because the world was already under condemnation. This This is clear from verse 18, right? This is verse 18. John is making a distinction between those who believe and are thus no longer under condemnation and those who do not believe and thus are already condemned. Right? And, and, and as a Christian, this is the way you think about it. You are no longer under condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? You are no longer under condemnation. You were under condemnation. No, you are, now you are no longer under condemnation. They're no longer condemned. Their, their condemnation is because they have no Savior who would take away their sin. This is why we can say that Jesus did not come to bring the possibility of saving people. Like there, there are some who say, well, you know, Jesus came to bring the possibility, and, you know, if only, you know, you'd believe. No, Jesus actually saves. Jesus is actually saving people. But there are some who are already condemned. They're already under condemnation. You see, people don't go to hell because they reject Jesus. They go to hell because they are already condemned for their sin. They are sinners, and they're an act of rebellion against the Holy God. They are guilty of cosmic treason against the Holy God of the universe. Their lack of faith simply leaves them where they already were to begin with. Condemned. Vessels of wrath under God's judgment. What is needed is a heart change. We, we, we looked at last week, right? There's a need for a heart change. A new spirit needs to be given to them. They need faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you can see how these all thing, all this stuff fits together. God's wrath remains on the unregenerate sinner who does not believe in the name of the only Son of God because God has not chosen to transform their heart. But God, in His abundant grace, did choose some to have eternal life. We read, the spirit blows as He wills, and we don't know where He comes from, where he goes, as the wind does. God, Jesus came to actually save sinners. And so although John is not stated here explicitly, the substance the substance of the doctrine of justification is present. Now, in order to illustrate his point further, John John pictures the condemnation of people in verse 19 in terms of light and darkness. And these are symbols, again, that John, John uses a lot. Light and darkness. The verdict of the condemned has already been read. The light has come into the world, but the people who are in darkness, well, they love their darkness. And the reason they love darkness is because they have deeds which are wicked. Which is to say, you know, people who practice wickedness, they want their wickedness to remain in the dark. They want it to be in the shadows. They don't want you to know. You've probably seen this in your own heart, haven't you? You don't want other you don't want your sin your personal sins brought to light, do you? Nobody does. And in fact, you, you needed to, though. But they don't want that. They they hate the light. Because they don't want their wickedness to be revealed. They don't want to be exposed for what they truly are. And so they hate the light because of what the light reveals. They don't wish for their hearts to be laid bare because they are naked and they're ashamed. But the light has come into the world. The light has come into the world. The, the incarnate eternal word has come. It shines in the darkness. Jesus is himself the revelation of God. He is the, the personification of holiness and, and of righteousness. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The light of Christ then exposes the evil of this present world, a a world which is, again, already under condemnation, a world which is in need of salvation. Verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice that those who hate the light run from the light. They they fear exposure. Their practice is evil. And so uh, they do an endless succession of worthless deeds in the shadows. But the lover of light is one who has been transformed internally. And they come into the light. They they come into the light not to parade themselves. Like, look at all the wonderful things I do. No. They, They come into the light so that it may be made clear that their works have been carried out in God. God has transformed me. God has saved me. I delight in Him and His Word to be obedient to Him. In other words, we don't get to take credit for all the good deeds that we do. Because it is God who gets the ultimate glory. And, And that's what we want. right? We want God to be glorified through us. Those who come into the light are... By the way, not intrinsically better people. The Christian is not superior to other image bearers. The difference is found in our status. We've been saved from bondage to sin and certain condemnation. Just as Israel was saved from certain death from those snake bites. John wants his readers to turn to the Son of Man who has been lifted up with the same faith as the Israelites in the wilderness who turned to the bronze snake and were saved. It is only by the gift of faith alone that anyone can experience new birth, gain entrance into the kingdom. It is the Spirit of God which is uh, transferring our hearts that we might believe and rest and look to the Son for our salvation, that we may no longer be under condemnation. In other words, people must respond to the outward call of the gospel. But this is only possible because they've been given a new heart, a new spirit within them. Because left to themselves, they are under condemnation. Jesus came to save sinners, such as you and me. It is a spirit which transforms the spiritually dead that we might look to Jesus. And live. Jesus is the provision of God, which demonstrates God's amazing love for his people who come from many and all of the nations. What you and I do then is proclaim that Jesus we proclaim that Jesus to all of the nations. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This teaching is for all of us. All of us. We all need to know Christ. We all need to be made more and more mature in Christ. God has been pleased to reveal himself to the nations, the riches of his glory, which is our hope. And and so the unbeliever must be called to faith. He or she must be warned of the danger that they're in, that they are under condemnation. And the believer, the believer needs to be comforted that you are no longer under condemnation. We need to be reminded and comforted that God, because of His great love for you, has been so gracious to you. You've been transformed by his Spirit, and you you enjoy the glories of God. And so, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to rest in your Saviour. Engage with those who are outside the kingdom. Bring them the warnings of the condemnation of their under, point them to the only source of life that lifted up Christ. The day of salvation is today. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we are thankful for Your provision. That You have provided for us salvation through Jesus Christ. Who took the condemnation that we deserved upon Himself, that He was condemned at the cross, but then He rose again victorious over sin and death, and that He has given to us, those who look to Christ by faith, that we have eternal life in Him. We thank You for the work of Your Spirit in us. We thank thank You for all Your blessings on us. Help us to grow. Help us to be mature in Your faith.